Watt. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 33, King Edgbert the Conqueror. In 786, King Kinewulf was murdered, throwing Wessex into disorder. In the midst of the feuding that followed, King Offa of Mercia moved in to secure the West Saxons' passivity by elevating a puppet to the throne. He did this in the form of his son-in-law, Beortrich. This manoeuvre did not go unchallenged, though, and Beortrich faced opposition from at least one West Saxon nobleman, Edgbert, who warred against Beortrich, but was ultimately driven into exile in Francia for his troubles. Upon Beortrich's death in 802, Edgbert would return from his exile and claim the West Saxon throne, and so would begin a period in which the political map of southern England was changed forever, as Edgbert led a reconquest of all the lands south of the Thames, and secured West Saxon preeminence in southern England. But who was this Edgbert? Like many figures of early Anglo-Saxon history, he seems to almost materialise out of nothing. This can't be accurate, of course, he must have had some background. But what little survives is confusing and must be unpacked. Specifically, there are two different traditions about Edgbert's ancestry, and both come from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, or more specifically, from two different recensions of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The oldest recension, the one found in the Parker Library in Cambridge, and usually referred to by scholars as the A recension, begins with a genealogy of King Alfred, which identifies Edgbert as a descendant of Ingeld, the brother of King Ina, thus making Edgbert a member of the West Saxon nobility. This same descent is given in the entry covering the year 855 to 859, detailing the downfall and death of Edgbert's son Athelwulf. This would be uncontroversial if it wasn't for a comment written into the margins of another recension of the Chronicle, one written in Canterbury around the year 1100, which claims that Edgbert, father of Athelwulf, was the son of King Aelmund of Kent. In the A recension, Edgbert is twice called the son of Aelmund, but this Aelmund is never identified as the King of Kent. This has led to some scholarly disagreement, with some scholars suggesting that Edgbert was a member of the Kentish royal house, who forged a link to the West Saxon throne. Others suggest that Aelmund was King of Kent, but was also a member of the West Saxon dynasty, probably through intermarriage with West Saxon nobility. This is the view most often encountered, and I don't see any reason to reject it. It would also help to explain how later, Edgbert was able to so easily annex Kent, but I'll say more about this later when I get to it. So after the death of Kinewulf in 786, Edgbert attempted to claim the throne, but was unsuccessful in doing so, and was driven into exile in the court of the Emperor Charlemagne. As I said in the episode on Offa, this wasn't an unusual fate for noble Englishmen during his reign, as Offa sought to build his Mercian Empire. It seems that Edgbert was yet another victim of Offa's imperialist designs. There is some confusion, though, in the Chronicle about how long Edgbert was in exile. Some recensions of the Chronicle say that Edgbert was in exile for three years. This seems odd since Beortrich ruled for 16 years, so these numbers don't seem to add up, since how would the exile last for only three years if Edgbert came into conflict with Beortrich in the wake of Kinewulf's death, and Beortrich then proceeded to rule for 16 years? 
Offer wasn't known to be kind to his enemies, so it seems out of character for him to allow Edgebert to stay in Wessex unmolested. The usual scholarly suggestion is that the three recorded in the Chronicle is actually a scribal error, and the scribe actually meant to write the Roman numeral for 13, but forgot the initial X. This still poses a bit of a problem, since it doesn't account for the full period of Beatrice's reign. Possibly it may be yet another mistake on the part of the chronicler, or it may suggest that it took about three years for Beatrice to fully establish himself as king, or even that Edgebert was able to return to Wessex in the period following the death of Offa in 796. It's unclear, but the important part is that Edgebert spent a period in exile in Francia. If you think back to the episode on Offa, I talked there a bit about how the Mercian king sought to treat Charlemagne as an equal, something that Charlemagne tolerated up to a point, but certainly didn't agree with. The exile of Edgebert at Charlemagne's court is reflective of a tendency for the Frankish emperor to give aid to Offa's enemies. We know that he had ties to the Northumbrian court through his advisor Alcuin. He also harboured exiled Englishmen from Offa's southern enemies, including the future king of Kent, Edbert Prion. While Offa saw Charlemagne as an equal and ally, Charlemagne seemingly was wary of fully backing Offa, and preferred instead to hedge his bets by fostering good relations with men who might well return to rule in England after Offa's death. We know very little about Edgebert's time in Francia. Later historians engaged in a decent amount of retrospective myth-making about the time, William of Malmesbury, for example, writing in the 12th century, claimed that Edgebert's success as a ruler was based on skills he learned from the Franks. Even later, a 15th century writer claimed that Edgebert married a relative of Charlemagne named Redberger, and thus the West Saxon kings were from then on kinsmen of the great Frankish emperor. Redberger seems to be fictional, though, and in truth we don't know the identity of Edgebert's wife. We do know, though, that Charlemagne was very careful about allowing his kin to marry foreign rulers, even refusing a match between one of his daughters and Offa's son Edgefrith, so it seems unlikely that he would have allowed an obscure exile to marry into his family. Edgebert's years in Francia are a mystery, but what is not a mystery is that in 802 he returns to Wessex and finally succeeded in becoming king. This was a moment of great tension, as the Mercians faced the prospect of losing control of their southern border. Something happened in 802 which bears some unpacking, and which may be related to Edgebert's return but equally may not be. Following the death of Beortrich, Athelmund, the alderman of the Witcher, invaded Wessex by crossing the Thames at Kempsford. He was then met by the alderman of Wiltshire, Weostan, and the two fought a great battle at Kemsford in which both Ealdermen were killed. On its face, it would be simple to present this as a Mercian attempt to install another puppet on the West Saxon throne, and this may well be the case, but it's also worth considering that Athelmund was an heir of the kings of the Witcher, who had been subjected and demoted by Mercia in the relatively recent past. It's possible then that he was attempting to claim a kingly title for himself, if he was acting with Mercian backing, then it's reasonable to ask why didn't Cohenwolf lend him greater support. Another possibility is that the border between what is today Gloucestershire and Wiltshire had a long history of passing between Mercian and West Saxon control, making it certainly disputed territory. 
Thus, Athelmund may have been seeking to retake lands that he regarded as his own, and not to interfere in the West Saxon transfer of power at all. We don't know. Certainly if the aborted invasion was an attempt to keep control of Wessex, then it was a failure. But the Battle of Kempsford could have had major repercussions for West Saxon and English history. Not only could it have allowed the Mercians to continue to control Wessex after the death of Beortrich, but just think of what would have happened if Weostan hadn't been killed. With the prestige of a victory, he could have taken the throne, and if he had, then there would have been no King Edgbert, possibly no end to the Mercian supremacy, and probably no King Alfred. English history would have looked totally different, if we could even meaningfully still speak of English history at all. But things didn't turn out that way. Athelmund was killed, as was Weostan, and the Mercians made no attempt to prevent Edgbert from becoming king. The period of his rule, from 802 to 825, has left little to no footprint in the historical record. From this, we might imagine that he was simply keeping to himself in Wessex. However, this was certainly not the case. He seems to have been primarily focused on removing any threat posed by the Cornish, as in 815, we are told in the Chronicle that he unleashed a great force against the Cornish and ravaged their entire kingdom from east to west. In 825, he was back in the West Country, as charter evidence attests that he was moving between royal sites in Hampshire and Devon, when a battle occurred between the Cornish and the men of Devon at a place called Gavelford. In response to this, Edgbert again ravaged Cornwall, perhaps indicating that the Battle of Gavelford was part of a raid by the Cornish into Wessex that Edgbert then proceeded to repay with his full military force. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider that you're using to listen to this. It also really helps when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel and when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes and transcripts for as little as $3 a month. 
And speaking of patrons, I want to give a shout out to Jason Oxley and Mary Teresa Howell, who recently became patrons. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you're enjoying the extra material you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. It's not for his wars against the Cornish that Edgbert is remembered, however. In 825, probably sensing opportunity with Edgbert thus engaged, subduing the Cornish, Beowulf, king of Mercia, invaded Wessex, planning to catch Edgbert unaware. Beowulf badly mistimed his invasion, though, since his army unexpectedly encountered Edgbert's force at Ellendon in Wiltshire, much further north than expected and there the two armies fought a desperate battle in which the Mercians were put to flight. It's safe to say that the Battle of Ellendon is one of the most consequential in Anglo-Saxon, dare I say even in English, history. With Beowulf's humiliating defeat, Mercia was exposed as being unable to keep hold of the territories it had annexed, and thus the Mercian supremacy quickly unravelled. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, in the wake of Ellendon, as Beowulf was limping back north, Edgbert broke off a part of his army and placed it under the command of his son Athelwulf. He then sent this second army to Kent, where they drove out the Mercian puppet king Beoldred, and received the submission of Kent, Surrey, Sussex and Essex, because these small kingdoms all saw in Edgbert a relative of their native dynasties, probably a reference to his being the son of Aelmund. The way the Chronicle phrases this makes it sound like all of this occurred within the year 825, but that's not necessarily the case. A Kentish charter surviving from the archives of Canterbury identifies the year 826 as the third year of King Beowulf, indicating that he still held power in Kent in that year. This was the same year that Beowulf was killed attempting to subdue the East Anglians, so it seems probable that Edgbert didn't drive out Beeldred until 826, when Mercia had lost its king. At a later unknown date, Edgbert also drove out King Seared of Essex. What may be accurate in the Chronicle's account is that Edgbert doesn't seem to have faced too much difficulty in annexing these southeastern territories, again probably because he was a relative of Aylmund, and thus had some claim to the Kentish sphere of influence. To put this achievement into perspective, Edgbert was the first West Saxon king since Cadwalla to successfully expand his territory to the east. By doing this at the expense of Mercia, he created a new order in southern England. Upon achieving this position, he set about consolidating it, by minting coins at Canterbury and at Rochester, and by granting land so as to build a strong support base in his newly acquired regions. This was probably necessary, since some of his actions must have been somewhat unpopular. For instance, he ended the practice of Archbishops of Canterbury being allowed to mint their own coinage, something which the independently-minded Archbishops certainly would not have appreciated. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.
History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The ascendancy of Wessex after 825 inspired the East Anglians to request Edgbutt's support against Mercia. This is what provoked Beowulf's failed invasion of East Anglia in 826 and catastrophically undermined Mercian military strength. This threw Mercia into a period of internal instability, which Edgbutt was all too eager to exploit. In 829, he invaded Mercia, drove out King Wilaf, and began to mint coins in London using the title King of the Mercians. He also met with the King of the Northumbrians on the border with Mercia, and received their submission. Thus Edgbert became de facto overlord of all of England south of the Humber. In its account of these momentous years, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle identifies Edgbert as a Bretwalder, a term meaning wide ruler, which was later used by historians to characterise certain exceptionally powerful Anglo-Saxon kings. It doesn't seem to have been a proper title in this period, but it is reflective of Edgbert's at least perceived immense power and control over his surrounding kingdoms. Edgbert's ascendancy covered the years 825 to 829, but it quickly stalled in the year 830. Wilaf returned to Mercia and retook London. He also seems to have reinstalled a puppet king in Essex, signalling that that kingdom too had left the West Saxon sphere of control. In East Anglia, a new king, Athelstan, began to mint coins without any reference to either Wilaf or Edgbert, signifying East Anglia's newfound independence of anybody. It seems then that after his explosive rise to power, Edgbert even more rapidly lost control of his subjugated territories. How are we to account for this? The most common explanation is that Edgbert, like other returning exiles, received support from the Franks, and it was this which allowed him to so dramatically remake the field of Anglo-Saxon international politics. Around the year 830, though, something changed as Frankish commercial networks on which much of southern England relied suddenly collapsed for reasons that are not fully understood. In the year 830 itself, Francia was engulfed in civil war between Emperor Louis the Pious and his sons, which would rage on and off for the next decade. This would also distract the Franks from their English allies, and most likely drain their treasuries. It's also possible that the extraordinary rise of Edgbert made the Franks uneasy, just as they'd been uneasy with the extent of Offa's power. The collapse of Edgbert's real power and the crumbling of Carolingian Francia coincide remarkably well, making some link between the two seem likely. It seems that Edgbert himself was a paper tiger, who, without the backing of his powerful friends, struggled to hold on to a lot of what he'd conquered. We shouldn't let this sudden collapse distract from the long-term impact of Edgbert's reign, though. Mercia's supremacy was over, and the southeast, with the exception of Essex, would never again be under Mercian hegemony. 
After 8.30 though, Edgbert seems to have become especially anxious to secure his power and the authority of his son Athelwulf. This is probably the reason for his focus on granting land in Kent and elsewhere as a means to counter residual mercy and sympathy. It's also why, in 838, he convened a council at Kingston-on-Thames, at which he restored land at Myling to Christchurch in return for their recognition of Athelwulf as his heir. This consolidation seems to have been the main focus of the later years of Edgbert's reign. Another threat also presented itself in the final years of Edgbert's reign, when in 838, the Cornish made an alliance with Viking raiders in an attempt to break away from West Saxon control. The ensuing battle at the place called Hingston Down was in effect the last gasp of Cornish independence, as it was the last recorded battle between the Cornish and the West Saxons. There was still a king in Cornwall after this point, the last recorded Cornish king Dungarth dying in 875, but all evidence suggests that after the reign of Edgbert, Cornwall was fully under West Saxon control. The theme of consolidation which dominated Edgbert's final years, is further amplified in his will, or at least in the account of it that survives in the will of his grandson, Alfred. Its most striking request was that only male members receive land, so that none of it would pass out of the family via marriage. This suggests a keen awareness on Edgbert's part of the importance that wealth played for a king and so he was careful not to gift away too much of what he'd conquered, lest it endanger the prospects of his son. Edgbert died in 839, seemingly whilst he was planning a pilgrimage to Rome, recorded in a letter that he sent to Emperor Louis the Pious, requesting aid in preparing the journey. All of his frugality in his final years paid off, as the succession of Athelwulf seems to have gone mostly unchallenged, and much of the territory Edgbert had conquered remained in West Saxon control. But it's undeniable that the final years of Edgbert's reign are a shadow of the glories that he achieved in 825 to 829. So what are we to make of Edgbert? There's no doubt that he was a monumentally important king in the history of Wessex. He did end the Mercian supremacy and bring much of the southeast into West Saxon control after all, but the extraordinarily successful years between 825 and 829 were not reflective of much of Edgbert's time on the throne. He spent the first decade in a bit of his reign in almost total obscurity, seemingly mostly focused on the Cornish to his west. Then his conquest of Mercia in 829 was swiftly undone, and the final decade of his reign was spent trying to secure his power base in a manner suggestive of anxiety about potential rebellion. In the historical record, Edgbert is mainly remembered for his successes between 825 and 829. These certainly earn him a place of great importance, since they permanently remade the political map of Anglo-Saxon England. But it's important, I think, to view Edgbert in light of his entire life, his exile, his early reign, his successes and his failures, and not just as the king who conquered the south and paved the way for King Alfred. The full picture is more of a mixed bag than the surface level reading would suggest. Edgbert emerges as a king bolstered by powerful friends abroad, who was able to translate this backing into somewhat permanent achievements at home but the reliance on the Franks, if that's what caused the A30 collapse, was also a poison chalice that made Edgbert's sweeping conquests north of the Thames into unsustainable aberrations, which would inevitably crumble as soon as backing disappeared. 
Again, I don't want this to downplay Egbert's importance. Without him, it's probable that England would not exist today in the form that it does. But it does put his successes into perspective, and mitigates against too much of a great man interpretation of history. By laying bare the extent to which Egbert was a product of his times and circumstances, and how these amplified his native talents. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. But I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.